poetry, writing, dreams, and customer service. It's all coming up next on the special bonus edition of Resurrection Revealed. Thanks so much to tuning in to Resurrection Revealed, the unofficial podcast and blog by fans and for fans of ABC's TV show Resurrection. I am Troy Heinrichs with you this week. You can find our show notes for this episode at resurrectionrevealed.com slash 37 for this 37th episode. And we wanted to share with you a recent visit we had with Jason Mott. Jason, as you remember, is the author of the New York Times bestselling novel, The Returned, which Resurrection is based on. And he is out promoting his new book, The Wonder of All Things. Now, I have actually finished this book, and I can tell you it was a page turner. It was very exciting, very riveting, and trying to figure out in this one little girl's life by the name of Ava just what people want from her. And Jason actually shares a little bit of the kind of setup for this book in his discussion, which we will play for you in just a minute. We want to remind you that Resurrection Revealed is not affiliated with ABC, ABC Television, or Plan B, but, you know, we'd like to be at some point. And because of all of you, we're able to bring you this special interview. Sit back, relax, and enjoy this discussion with Jason Mott on his book tour for The Wonder of All Things. So it's been a very interesting, like, two and a half years. Um, I always like to tell, like, you know, two and a half years ago, so basically May 2012, I was literally answering phones at Verizon Wireless customer service. Um, so it's been a bit of a change to go from answering phones to <laughs> a job you hate to having a TV show and best-selling book and all that other awesome stuff. Um, so, you know, the backstory is that, you know, I, I've been writing, you know, for a fairly long time. Like, I got serious about it when I was in my early 20s. I'm 36 now, so I've been kind of working at it for a very long time. Um, but so I went to school, got an undergrad, undergraduate degree in fiction, a graduate degree in poetry, and I learned very quickly that when you come out of school with a graduate degree in poetry, you go get a job answering phones at Verizon Wireless. Because <laughs> um, believe it or not, no one's beating out your door to hire you. Um, so I did. I answered phones, and it was a it's a very bad job. Like it was a horrible, horrible job, honestly. Because you don't call like you don't call your cell phone company to say you're having a good day. People call up the cell phone company because they're angry and they want to usually want to curse somebody out. And I was the guy getting cursed out for 40 hours a week for four years. Um, and to make it worse, or even you know even much more horrible, is um, even though I was in North Carolina, we handled specifically New York Metro. So it was only New Yorkers. So I was working there and just, just kind of hating life, talking to angry people all day. Um, but I was also writing at the same time. You know, I tried to do like one big project a year and I was kind of working on things. Um, oh, one, one more tip about you know Verizon Wireless. I've got a ton of stories. If you want more, ask questions later. There's a ton of Verizon right, Wireless stories. Oh, oh it's, a, it's a tell-all book. It's what it'll be. Um, but like one thing I always tell people is, you know, Two, two tips. Um, the first tip is be nice when you call up customer service. Like, I know you're mad about whatever's going on with your phone or whatever it is, but the person you're talking to had nothing to do with whatever happened to your issue. <laughs> so cursing them out and yelling at them does nothing to help the cause. Um, so that's rule number one. Um, two, if you're having an affair, the person at cell phone company cannot help you hide that affair. So don't call and ask. Um, that call came in three times a week, and I am not kidding. <laughs> Um, so what happens is, what do you do when you have an affair? You call the person, and then you realize, gee, that call is probably on a call record somewhere. So you call customer service going, hey, is there a record of the phone calls I made? There sure is. Well, how do I get rid of that record? You kind of can't. And then you have a weird <laughs> argument, and you find out way more about this person's life than you ever wanted to know. <laughs> so those are my two free tips about calling cell phone companies. So I was working there, and you know, just kind of trudging along doing that job, and again, still writing stuff. I had gotten two books of poetry published at that point, um, but you're not going to quit your job with poetry. You know, it's, it's a lovely art form, but it is the least read, you know, writing medium in the country. Like we read poetry less than we read anything else. And that's just the truth of the medium. Um, but again, I loved it, so I was, you know, doing that, and I was also writing fiction as well. So my mother passed in 2001, and in the summer of 2010, I had this really vivid dream that I come home from work one night and find my mother sitting at the kitchen table waiting for me. It's that kind of classic visitation dream. Um, so she and I sat down and just talked about all the things that had happened in the nine years since she passed away. Uh, I talked about going to school, trying to be a writer, all these new people that I had met, these new friends I had made. Um, she gave me a hard time for not being married, which your mom kind of does. Um, <laughs> it was this really vivid you know, moment where I was back with my mother again for the first time in almost a decade. 
So I woke up the next morning and I fully expected to find her sitting at the kitchen table. Like it was that vivid and that real. And of course she wasn't there. So I was talking to a friend about it a few weeks later. And at some point in the conversation, he said, you know, wouldn't it be amazing if that actually happened? And what if it wasn't just your mother? Um, so that's kind of where the return started. I wrote this short story about this couple whose son kind of came back and it was like this in this world where people were kind of suddenly coming back. Did a reading in this town, Wilmington, where I'm, you know, we live, live near. People responded really strongly. They asked all these questions about it. And they were just kind of just really loving the story. So I said, okay, this be, this be my project for this year. So I spent the year writing it, finished it up, started sending stuff out to agents, like query letters, to find an agent, because that's kind of step one in getting published. Um, now, mind you, I had written about four books before that and queried, and like, none of those had ever gotten published because they were really terrible books. Um, and I'm totally willing to admit that. Um, but I, the thing was, I didn't expect this book to go anywhere either, because it's like, oh, I've written another book that nobody's going to want to read. Like, that's just kind of the mentality that I was in. Um, so I sent the query letter out. Got a bunch of rejection letters. Like I said, I queried about 15 different agents. Got nine or so query letters, I mean, rejection letters, which is kind of par for the course. Um, there's still like two agents I haven't heard back from yet. You know, fingers crossed. <laughs> See how that goes. Um, but eventually I got a, a query letter from an agent who said, hey, it sounds pretty interesting. You know, let me read the manuscript. So I sent it to her. Um, and she said, let's do a phone call, which is a good sign because agents don't call you to tell you no. They email you to tell you no. And trust me, I know this. So <laughs> So we had a phone call, and I remember it vividly because I was sitting in the parking lot before going into work, um, just staring at the building, kind of hating life. Because I, I kind of, it was one of the things where I hated my job so much, I kind of wished the building would burn down. Yeah. Um, like, no one's hurt in this imaginary fire. Just, you know, you show up one day, there's fire trucks, and like, oh, was anybody injured? No. Awesome. Just the building just burned down. All the space um, in real life. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, just no one injured, just the building's just gone for like three months. They got to rebuild, and you just sit at home for three months. Um, so that's kind of where I was. And so I get on the phone with her. And finding an agent, in case anyone's writing and kind of curious about how it works, um, it's kind of like dating in a very strange way because your, your agent needs to be very excited about who you are as a person, apart from your writing. I mean, they obviously need to be excited about your writing, but they also kind of need to actually like you as a person um, because if you don't, the partnership doesn't quite work. It's very much a partnership. And if you don't actually like each other, that can lead to friction, which leads to, you know, deals not being made, which just doesn't work for anyone. Um, so we spent some time talking about, you know, what do you like to do on the weekends? What kind of books do you read? What kind of movies do you watch? Just really datish kind of questions. Then we got past that phase. And I also learned that agents do that because there are a lot of stalkers out there, people that get really, really attached to agents in strange ways. So you have to kind of weed out the crazy people. Um, little did you know I'm really crazy, but um, <laughs> I made it past the test. So <laughs> we started talking about the book. <clears throat> and she goes, there's two things with the book we have to kind of correct or, you know, two issues I have with it. She goes, the first issue is your title. Your title is really pretty horrible. Um, the title at the time was not The Return. The original title was Alive in Arcadia. Um, and she was like, it's just not a strong title. And I was like, okay, I don't mind changing titles. Not married to it. Um, and then she goes, the second issue is um, we have to redo the last 50 pages. She's like, your, your last 50 pages just don't work. Um, and that stung pretty heavily. Um, and she made a case for it. Like she, she explained what she, what she felt was happening. And I was just really not not excited about that. And I said, let me let me call you back, um, which is kind of arrogant. Like I finally get an agent on the phone after years of trying. And it's like, no, nah, I'll call you back. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, but I did. So I, I took a couple of days and I called my buddy up, the one who kind of started me on this whole thing to start with. <clears throat> and he and I were talking. So I gave this whole like 15 minute spiel about how, you know, authors and you know, artists shouldn't change for anybody. And if you're an artist, you just make your art and screw her. What does she know? And Charles Bukowski wouldn't change for, her. you know, screw that. And. It's just, just total BS speech. Um, and so my buddy's sitting there and listens to all of it without saying a word. And when I finish, he looks at me and he goes, dude, you're working at Verizon Wireless. <laughs> like, what do you want? Like, make a change, see how it goes. Where should you go? I said, okay, touche, fair enough. Um, so I made the changes. Um, and as soon as I made the changes, I understood it. Like, what was happening was um, there were certain characters that for me were very much secondary characters and they didn't have a full kind of story arc as it should be. And so she, I'm trying to say that I say this very vague because I don't want to spoil endings. Uh, so I'm being very vague about the description. Um, but it came down to, she was seeing something different. Um, cause she, agents are good at seeing things from a reader standpoint, not from the author standpoint, which is a good fit. Um, they also can see stuff from both standpoints, but they're really good about seeing it as a reader. Um, so I made the changes. We spent about six months working on it. Because they're actually buying seasons in publishing. Another publishing fun fact. Most books are bought in the spring and the fall. I have no real idea why. But I know in summertime, they take Fridays off. And like wintertime, they just do... It's like, it's like I don't know. But spring and fall when you buy books in publishing. <clears throat> so we spent the winter preparing for the spring buying season. 
She sent the manuscript out on May 10th of 2012, and I know this because I quit my job not long thereafter. <laughs> um, so we sent it out on Thursday. I spent the entire weekend freaking out. <clears throat> this is what you do when your book's finally out in the world and you're waiting to hear back. Because she said, you know, it can happen fast, it can happen slow, it may not happen at all. You just never know. Um, so just kind of waited and waited and waited. Monday, she calls me at work, and she rarely called me because I hate talking on the phone because I worked at Verizon Wireless for four years. Um, like, I still hate talking on the phone to this day. Um, <laughs> but she called me up, and she says, we have a preemptive offer from Harlequin. Um, and I was pretty shocked by that. I was like, why did Harlequin read my book? Like, why did you send it to Harlequin? Like, I had this image of, like, Fabio on the cover with his chest yeah. out and his hair blowing. I was like, dude, like, why did you send it to Harlequin? Um, and she goes, no, they have an imprint called Mira um, that does upscale literary adult fiction, like non-romance type of fiction. Um, and they're the ones who read it and loved it. Um, and so we, we talked about it. And so they had made an offer. And while it's not, you know, retire and move to the Bahamas money, because I'd be there right now as opposed to here, um, it was quit your Verizon Wireless job that you hate money, which is really all I wanted. That was the very minimum I was shooting for. <clears throat> so I remember vividly, we had a discussion. She said, like she, on the same phone call, she said, don't quit your job. Um, she goes, there's three reasons for this. Um, she goes, one, we haven't made a deal. They just made an offer. That's not a deal. We just, we're just talking about things. Um, she goes, two, if we make a deal, it can be as much as six months before the check actually arrives. She's like, you have to pay your bills. You got to have insurance. You got to eat all that kind of stuff. Um, and she goes three book deals fall apart all the time. And that's actually very true. I learned that in the last couple of years, like in the publishing world, basically a book deal isn't final until your book goes to the press, goes to the printers. That's when things are actually final and the money's truly yours. At any point before that, the book contract can fall apart for a thousand different reasons, and the publisher wants their money back. So if you've been spending their money to live off of, you've got an issue. Um, so she goes, don't quit your job for those three reasons. I said, okay, awesome. Um, hung up the phone, went to my supervisor, and said, hey, I'm going home, and walked out the door. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so that was my ability to not listen. Um, but luckily, it all worked out after that, like thankfully. Um, but that's my, my, my fun story of, of leaving that. <clears throat> so that was good, and that was awesome enough. And But what happened was she sent the book to a film rights agent um, who's really good at what he does. About a month later, he emails me and says, hey, there's three networks and, you know, one film studio who are all interested in the project. I was like, oh, awesome. So we wound up going with Plan B, which is owned by Brad Pitt, whom I have not, re who not met. People always ask, you meet Brad Pitt? It's like, nope, have not met him. <laughs> haven't emailed him, haven't talked to him, none of that. Would love to meet him at some point. Would love to meet his wife even more if that can be worked out. <laughs> um, but they, they were excited about the project, and I knew who Plan B was. I'm, I'm a bit of a film buff. like I'm a bit of a junkie. So I knew the production company. I knew their work. And so we just kind of paired up. I didn't expect it to go anywhere because books will actually get optioned a fair amount and not go anywhere. Um, but about a month and a half later, they had a writer. Two months later, they had a director. And then they were casting. And it all just kind of fell into place in a very perfect order. But this is all a year before the book was even released. Um, so this is freakishly fast that this all happened. <clears throat> yeah, because like they, they optioned in summer of 2012. The book wasn't due out until August 2013. So like all this was happening way before the book was due. The pilot was shot in March 2013 and picked up in May. And again, the book was still months from being, you know, being put out. Um, so things just fell into place in a really awesome way. So I've been on the road doing book tour for all that. Um, I have a story of passing out on a plane, which I may tell later, because um, book tours are brutal, awesome things. They're really good because you sell books, you meet readers, but they're really bad because you're in a new city every night for like five weeks, five or six weeks, so you get really exhausted. Um, so that, you know, that book got done, you know, that's the story of The Returned. But when I finished that, my, I had a two-book deal with my publisher, and my editor goes, okay, what's your next book going to be about? Um, so I pitched her this one story, and she shot it down because, you know, I still get rejections as a writer, so that happens. Um, and then I had this other story that I had kind of already started on about this father and daughter, and the daughter turns out to be very special. I hadn't really defined what it would be yet, but it was, it was a story I knew I was kind of getting into. Um, so I pitched it to my editor, and I said, I think it's about this girl who can actually heal people by touching them and the reaction that the world kind of has to it. And my editor goes, yeah, I like that one. Let's, let's see how that goes. Um, so as I was promoting The Return and working on The Returned, I was also you know, starting on this book and like plowing along on this book. Um, finished it up, and it, it wound up being a very, fun, a very fun project and a very interesting project for me. Um, it's a combination of two things. People always want to know like where the story come from. It came from two different places, actually. Um, on the one hand, it came from just my fascination with the unexplained, and to a certain extent, my fascination with the churches in the South that do like the healing by laying on the hands, like that whole phenomenon. Like, I'm born and raised in the South. You know that it's, it's a part of the atmosphere down there. The Bible Belt. You know that's all part of the atmosphere of life down there. Um, so I was always very fascinated by that. 
So I wanted to take, you know, the idea of someone being able to actually heal people and update it to, you know, the current world, 2014. How would this actually happen if it actually did exist and it was caught on camera? Like, what happens? Um, so that's where part of it came from. The other part came from the very good friend that I, I've already talked about twice. Watching him go from being this wild college person to like a dad and just the change that occurred. So I wanted to write a story about like fathers and daughters and like just family in particular. Um, because he he's that I have two different pictures of my friend. Um, like when I first him and I first started hanging out, it was in college. He was the guy who was always drunk, like always perpetually drunk. Um, he still, you know, he made the class sober, like passed his classes. But if he wasn't in class, he was in a bottle somewhere. Um, and he was just that wild party animal guy. Like I remember vividly one time at a party, he's out on the dance floor dancing. I was in the corner talking to people. And <laughs> it's like 3 a.m. He comes walking over to me and like his left arm is just kind of swinging. And he comes walking over and he's just completely hammered. He goes, dude. I just dislocated my shoulder dancing. Can you pop back in for me? Oh, jeez. Oh, <laughs> like, sure, why the hell not? Um, so I, I caught his shoulder and like, like pop it back in. He goes, oh, thanks. And it goes back goes and starts back dancing. <laughs> and so there's that image of him um, from college. But then you fast forward five years. He meets this really wonderful woman. Um, they get married. They have a daughter. Um, and he transitioned from being that, that wild party animal guy to being a stable father and husband in the smoothest, easiest transition I've ever seen. You know, some people struggle with that. You know, you think of the life you had before and all the freedom you lost or all that, you know, whatever all that is. But for him, that was never an issue. Um, for him, it was like, no, I'm a dad now. I'm going to be a dad. I'm going to be the best dad I can be. And he's become that. Like, he, solid job. You know, he, he raised two wonderful kids right at this point. You know, his daughter now is, I think, seven no, that's not, that's not that old. It's like six. Um, he's got a new son who is three now, and they're two of the greatest kids that I, I've ever met. Um, so I wanted to write a story about fathers and daughters and just family and whatnot. Um, so that's where those two came from. Um, so now I'll do a little reading from this that kind of sets up what the story is about, kind of gives you the teaser and all that kind of good stuff. And then, like I said, just open up the questions. Like I'm real big on just talking about you know whatever you guys want to talk about. Um, so we'll do a little reading here. And... Like I said, I'm not going to read too long. Like, what's happening at this point is the story opens at an air show in a small town. Because um, I'm from a very small town. Like, I'm from a town of literally about 700 people. Um, I live on a dirt road to this day. Like, it's way out in the middle of nowhere. Like, my town has two gas stations and a caution light. Like, that's all we have. Just a flashing <laughs> caution light. We had a stoplight. It took it out. So, we went backwards in progress, actually. Um, but I, I love it. Like, I, I love small towns because... The roots in small towns are so deep and like everything's just so interconnected in a very unique way. Like the, the, the land that I live on, my family's owned for about four generations now. And it's the same thing for other families in the area. So like when you interact with someone in a small town, you're oftentimes interacting with people that you, you know, your families have been tied together for, you know, all the hundred years, sometimes more than that. Um, and that's something you don't get in other kind of places. It just you just don't get it. <clears throat> but I also don't have Internet. So there's that trade off. Um, so you just you get a little bit of both. Um, so this, at this point, there's an air show that's come to town and Wash and her friend Ava, they're both 13. They go to the air show. They're kind of best friends at this point. Um, and halfway through the air show, the plane is kind of, you know, swirling around above them, loses control and plows into this huge grain silo that's standing in the middle of a field. The silo falls down, you know, people are injured and Wash and Ava are kind of trapped underneath in this small pocket of rubble. Um, Wash is pretty badly injured. He has like literally a pipe sticking into his side and like he's pretty badly hurt. Um, so Ava's trying to figure out some way to help him. Her father, Macon, who's the town sheriff, he, he, he finds the kids, but he can't reach them. Like, there's just too much debris in the way. He's trying to figure out how to get to them. Um, so, that's, you'll, so that's the conversation going on here. And I'll just kind of start moving and, you know, we'll get into this and then talk some. Ava, don't move, Macon yelled. Again, he tried to fit through the small gap in the rubble. Again, only his arm and shoulder fit. Ava, be still, he said. This thing isn't stable. She did not stop. She only kept her eyes on Wash and continued crawling toward him. When she reached the boy, she whispered his name. When he did not reply, she put her hands on his face and hoped to feel something that might indicate that he was alive. Then she leaned close to his face just above his open mouth and tried to feel his breath. But it was difficult to tell what she was feeling. She was bruised and scratched from the fallen silo, she was frightened. Every nerve of her body seemed to be speaking to her at once. It drowned out any breathing she might have felt slide from Wash's lips. Is he alive? Macon called. I don't know, Ava replied. He's hurt. 
She placed her hands on his neck and hoped for a pulse. But her hands were shaking, and the only heartbeat she could feel was the frightened thundering of her own. How was he hurt? Macon asked. Finally, help was arriving. Firemen and volunteers, but they were only in the beginning stages of solving the riddle of how to stabilize the debris and get to the children. Ava heard her father barking orders. She heard people shouting replies. There was talk of two-by-fours, steel rods, floor jacks, cranes. It soon became simply a choir of garbled voices. For Ava, there was only the wound in Wash's side, the sight of his blood spilling into the dust. I've got to do something, Ava said. She gripped him beneath the shoulders. No, Macon yelled. Don't move him. Don't touch him. But it was too late. She tugged at his shoulders, and as soon as she did, the debris that was covering him shifted in one great, awful lurch. The steel rod that was protruding into his side came free. His blood flowed faster. Macon called out for help. Ava cried. She said over and over again in a terrified voice, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Her hands leaped nervously in front of her. She did not know where to put them. She was torn between her desire to help the boy and the truth that what she had just done had only made things worse. Ava, Macon called. Eventually, his daughter heard him. I'm sorry, she said. Don't think about it, Macon replied. Just put your hands over the wound. Put your hands over it to help slow the bleeding. Just hold on. For a third time, even though he knew it was pointless, he tried to maneuver his way through the small opening in the rubble. For a third time, he failed. Just put your hands on his side and press down, baby, he said. Slowly, Ava pressed her hands over Wash's side. She felt the pulse of his blood as it spilled over her hands. She closed her eyes and cried. She hoped, she prayed, she called out to a god that being only 13, she did not know that she understood or even believed in. But just now, at this moment, she would believe in anything or anyone. She would give anything for her best friend to live, to be healed. And then there was something akin to cold in her hands, a numbness in her palms, and a feeling of needles racing up the length of her arms. The sound of her father calling for her faded away. The sound of everything receded and the darkness of her closed eyes was darker than any she had experienced before. <clears throat> in the darkness, she saw him. Wash. He stood in the center of it, the pale hue of his skin almost glowing. He was bruised, and there was a cut on his brow. His clothes were covered with dirt from the fallen grain silo. The right side of his shirt was torn, and there was blood pouring from the wound. But the boy did not seem to notice any of this. He only looked at Ava with a face that betrayed nothing. It's okay, Wash said. But somehow, his words were in the voice of Ava's mother, dead for five years now. It's going to be okay. He smiled. The freckles dotting his face looked like cinnamon sprinkled over cloth. When he laughed, he laughed in the voice of Ava's mother. Then her eyes were open. Her father was still shouting her name. Her body was still bruised and sore. She still kneeled beside Wash with her hands covering his side her fingers sticky with blood. She heard ambulances. She heard yelling. She heard people crying. Then she heard the sound of Wash's voice. Ava, Wash said, opening his eyes. Ava, what did you do? He reached across his stomach and placed his left hand atop hers. No, Wash, she said quickly. I have to keep my hands on it. You're bleeding. I've got to stop the bleeding. But there was no strength in her. She felt lightheaded and could not resist as Wash took her hands away. Beneath where her hands had been, where once, there was a steel rod protruding into the boy, puncturing organs and promising that even the lives of children were not guaranteed in this world. There was only the boy's skin, perfect and unharmed. What did you do? Wash asked again, looking up at her. Then, for Ava, the world began to slide as if the hinges that kept the earth level were broken. The sight of Wash became a glimmering dimness, and then the dimness faded, replaced by an empty, unbounded darkness. Thank you. So that's the novel's inciting incident. Um, as all that is going on, um, there's someone basically nearby with like a camera and they film the entire thing and they, get, they upload it to YouTube and before you know it, the whole world knows about it. 
And as you might imagine, people get very, very excited by this phenomenon. They kind of start encroaching on this small town and the small girl and this family that's just trying to kind of rebuild itself. Um, so that's the basic premise of that story. Um, and I was like, yeah, I was have to, have to kind of say that, you know, it was, you know, the first book was picked up by um, ABC. And this book has actually been optioned by Lionsgate. Um, so we're all hopeful to see it in film format at some point. It's still a long, winding road, so it, it could show up next year. It could show up 10 years from now. It may never get produced. Um, Hollywood's a strange town. I'll just say that. But we're hopeful. The production company that did it is a very good production company, um, so we'll see. Um, so, yeah, so that's my spiel. Like I said, I do the, the question and answer period now. So questions about the book, about publishing, about what I ate for lunch today, like whatever you guys want to talk about. Is that a Verizon phone? It is a Verizon phone. <laughs> it is. Um, I, I will say, Verizon is a terrific cell phone company. Like, my issue wasn't with the company. My issue was with the customers. <laughs> so um, if, you have, if you have a cell phone needs, Verizon's the way to go. Um, just when you call customer service, be nice. <laughs> How's it going, Troy? Hey, how are you? Yeah. Uh, you said you had a two-book deal. Mm-hmm. So that's the second one. What's next? Um, another, another two-book deal, honestly. Um, so I'm working on book three right now at this point, um, which I can't talk too much about because my editor will come and kick me in the throat. Um, but it's a, it's, a, um, it's a bit of a road trip story. I'll say that. Um, but it's a slightly different road trip story. Um, I'll say that as well. <laughs> um, so yeah, at this point, I'm just trying to stay busy. Like the the publisher and I, I've got a really good editor who I like, which is rare. Um, the relationship with your editor from a writing standpoint is probably one of the most important ones. Um, you, you know, the relationship with your agent is probably the most important, but your editor becomes kind of the second most important one um, because editors at the publishing house are, they're basically like your, your cheerleaders, they're your advocates, they're the people who kind of really influence a lot of your career. Um, and more than that, it's like, it's good to have someone you can actually work with. Um, so my editor and I actually get along really, really well. Um, we don't always agree, but we never fight. I think it's a good distinction to have. Um, you know, we, we definitely disagree, we go back and forth, but we always find a good compromise. And I've never, her and I have never had any fights about anything at all. Um, she's actually the one who came up with the title for this book. Because I, I suck at titles, as previously discussed. And so the publisher got to the point where, like, the publisher needed a title, and the book wasn't, it was, you know, it was in revision, like, so it wasn't 100% done. It was still kind of a work in progress, and that's when I'm actually worst at titles, when I haven't, like, gotten the book finished and had to step back from it for six months, but they, they needed a title. So I emailed a few titles to my editor, and they were all horrible. She's like, nope, these are all terrible. And I was like, well, I got nothing, so <laughs> feel free to throw anything in the ring here if you want to. And so at some point, she, she emailed me and said, what about the wonder of all things? I was like, nailed it. Good job. <laughs> um, which is a great title. I love the title very much. So yeah, so two more two more books with the with the the publisher I'm at now and hopefully, you know, more books after that with the same book. Like I'm really happy with Mira and Harlequin actually. I like, it's it's really good to be there. How how much time do you have to complete the two books then? I think it's like the new contract was I think this contract was like a, a year between books. Which I don't recommend anyone do. A book a year <laughs> will murder you. Like I didn't see any of my friends and family from January through May of this year. It was horrible. Because y'all was working on this monster. So I think the, the previous book deal was like a year apart. The new book deal that we did, I think it's like maybe a year and a half. I can't remember exactly. I just know it's more time. Like that was the thing that I kept pushing. Like I need more time. People will say, you know, you're, as a writer, especially a writer that's writing full time, like you're in, you're in the 1%. Like if you're a writer and you're able to write full time, you're, you're in that very, very slim margin of writers. So you're blessed and you're, you're fortunate to do it. Um, and I agree with all of that. Like I'm very fortunate to be able to do it. But... If it comes at the cost of not being able to see family and friends for like months on end to where, you know, it becomes a case of, you know, what are you working for? Um, if you're if you're working all the time, you're not able to actually go to your niece's you know, graduation thing. You're not able to kind of have those moments that life is really about. What's it about? So we we, we got more time with the next book deal, um, which I'm very excited about because now I can actually go hang out with friends and kind of see people and just relax a little bit. So. Well, that's how to also affect the quality of your your ability to work if you're just feeling like. You know, deadline, deadline, deadline. I'll put anything down just to... Yeah, ex- yeah. Ahead. And that's another... I want to I curb that. I want to make sure that doesn't happen as well. Um, because, like, with this book, I think I managed to get it turned, like, un, you know, in on time because I, I kind of already had started it. Like, it was already a work in progress when my editor found out about it. So, I, even though I, kinda, I really only had, like, a year on it, like, it was already churning. Like, I knew where the story was going to go. It was just a matter of, you know, putting it out there. Um, but, yeah, like, when, when you're doing, like, a book every year, like, quality... Ha- it kind of has to go down, honestly. Like... I don't know of any writer that is that, you know, that kind of, you know, just putting books out that keeps the quality up because you, it's just the pace of it is just too much. Between promoting one book and writing another book, 
the pace kills you. Um, like right now, you know, I've been on book tour for six weeks. So six weeks on the road, which means six weeks no writing. So if I'm doing like a year contract, I lost you know, a month and a half just being out promoting one book. So yeah, it's, it's, it's a balance you have to strike. Publisher, now the publisher would love it. Like if I could do a book a year, they would honestly love it. Um, but I made it very clear this time, like, no, nah, it's not going to happen. <laughs> yes, ma'am. You talked about your dream. Mm-hmm. And then your first two books had a, had a touch of the mystical in them. Mm-hmm. Do you have any beliefs along those lines? Um, I don't answer that question. <laughs> but here, here's the reason why. Here's, no, no, it doesn't mean yes. It doesn't mean no. Here's the reason I don't answer that question. I have a, a very staunch belief that books should be things that start conversations and if I, as an author, tell you, um, you know, I wrote these two books and I believe all these different things about religion, about the supernatural, about whatever, then the conversation that you might have had with someone becomes crushed because you can say, no, I, I spoke to the author. He said that he believes this. Mm-hmm. So you can see it right here on page 32. So I'm right about this or I'm wrong or whatever. So by me, you know, giving as little personal information as possible about that, it lets readers actually talk about the book for just what the book is, not without my input in it. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of why I don't I duck those questions um, very, very evasively, um, <laughs> because I, I like I like talking about the book apart from the author. Um, I think too many, too many, you know, canonical authors, the writings aren't really even that good anymore. Just because the life of the author was so weird and so strange, you see it in their work, then it becomes exalted. I think, no, nah, you should stand apart. Like, the, if the text doesn't do its own thing, I don't care about the author too much. So that's my answer to that. <laughs> Next question. How involved did you get to be with the making of, of the show Resurrection? Honestly, not very involved at all. Like, I don't really do much of anything. Um, initially, when they were doing the pilot, you know, we did a few phone calls about the direction the show could go in and, like, where they might want to go with it. And then when it got picked up, it just it hit a point where... I had another book to write. They had a TV show to run and the two, you can't do both at once. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't trying to do both. Like I've, I've seen the job that the showrunner on that show has and I do not want that job. <laughs> like television, I wouldn't mind writing for television, but being a showrunner is not something I want. Like it's not a life goal for me at all. Um, so they went off and you know did the show and like I went off and did books, um, which is kind of the arrangement we still have. Like luckily they're very open and very welcoming. Um, <laughs> I've been down, hung out with the cast, hung out with the showrunner, hung out with, you know, met the writers um, you know, I was actually down there about two weeks ago, just kind of watching filming, just kind of hanging out. So it's, it's very, very, very open, very friendly, but they're doing their thing. And like, I, I like tuning in on Sunday nights and being surprised and say, Oh, I didn't see that coming at all. It's like, <laughs> I'm totally okay with that. Um, and then I've got, you know, I do my books and it's just, it's a good fit. Like we, the funny thing was like this past Sunday, um, there was an Easter egg in there. There was a Mott Easter egg in the episode, which I thought was absolutely hilarious. Like I, I fell out laughing. Um, there was a scene where um, Omar's character is like looking at something. He holds up a newspaper and it said, like, Camp Mott closed in 1993. I was like, Camp Mott? I just died laughing. Um, so I, 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 and I emailed, I emailed Aaron, um, Aaron Zellman, who's the showrunner. And I emailed him. I said, dude, great job on the Easter egg. He's like, yeah, glad you liked it, man. Like, you know, so it was like, yeah, it's just, it's fun for me to tune in and get surprises like that. Just kind of be a part of it that way. So, but they, I'm not involved at all. They're doing a great job with it. So I just finished the book. Awesome. And when we talked back in May, you said it was about the father and daughter. And as I read it, I had a sense that a lot of your mother was in the book as well. Mm-hmm. And did you pull on some of that memory conversation as you're writing? The yeah, part of definitely, definitely. Like, um, there's definitely a lot of personal, you know, in, in all, I think all writers, you know, you, you fixate on a topic. Um, and that topic bleeds into your writing throughout your career, usually. Um, I think the way I, the way I try to describe it is it's kind of like you're, you're, trying to, you're trying to sing a song in one specific note. And you just keep missing the note, but you keep trying. And, you know, you still do good work, but you just, you shoot it for one thing and, you just kind of spend your whole life trying to write about it. Take Tim O'Brien in you know, Vietnam. He writes beautifully about war, um, but it, it, you can tell it's something that he has kind of, it's his career, is writing about war. Um, I think for me, you know, writing about family and parents and maybe the loss of parents will be something that I kind of write about over and over again. Um, hopefully, it's, it's, hopefully I've avoided making it depressing. Like, I have yet, like luckily, no one's read the book and said, oh, it was a depressing book. Um, so luckily, I've avoided, I've avoided writing about, you know, death in a depressing format. So... Um, but yeah, like there's moments in there about, you know, my, my mother passing and my father passing and kind of tied together in very, very subtextual back kind of background kinds of ways. Um, so yeah. <clears throat> Next question. Who are some of the authors you'd like to read? Um, John Gardner is probably the cornerstone of my entire writing career. <laughs> um, so I always quote him. Um, his book Grendel and October Light are two phenomenal books. 
Grendel is the book that actually started me writing. Like I discovered that book when I was about 14 and just, it made me want to be a writer. Um, so it kind of got me, you know, I kind of owe it to that book. Um, William Golding, you know, Lord of the Flies, another phenomenal writer. Um, Neil Gaiman's Neil Gaiman's obviously terrific, amazing. Um, Tony Morrison, um, John Irving, um, Dawson Trumbo, just a short list there. Next question. Is your poetry still available? Yes, poetry is still available, actually. Um, it's through, poetry is always hard to find, though, but it's through a publisher called Main Street Rag. Um, so if you go to their website, which is MainStreetRag.com, you can find the two books of poetry I've gotten there. Um, those, poetry is fun. Like, writing those two books, the first book of poetry is about dating and romance and, you know, failed relationships, which is kind of story of my life. Um, but I did learn something with that book. Um, I've learned that if you write a book about your dating experiences, all your exes will find you and they will not be happy about it. Um, they will come to readings and curse you out in front of people um, and then wonder why you broke up with them. Um, so that, <laughs> that collection was very interesting. Um, th- well, I'll say the feedback from that collection was very interesting. And then my second collection was actually about my father's passing and also about superheroes. So that's, it sounds depressing. It's kind of a depressing collection. I'll admit that. Um, but I think it also kind of turns upward near the end. So, yeah, but it is still available. Next question. Any writing questions at all? Does your third book have a mystical bent to it, too? Um, no. I'm going to, I'm going to say I'll give, a, give a soft no. <laughs> <laughs> um, and the reason, I, the reason I give a soft no, is it, it, it does have an element of something. There is something different about the story, about the world of the story in particular, um, but I wouldn't qualify it as mystical. Um, but it is definitely a, a different kind of world. And it's funny because my, my editor and I are kind of, you know, we're kind of chatting about how far different this world is going to be. So that's, this is one of those things. But I wouldn't qualify it as mystical, but it's definitely different. I'll give you a writing one. Two. Um, so when you, we were talking about in The Returned, all of the <laughs> other stories that you wanted to do, and you were having a hard time figuring out how to tell those stories. Mm-hmm. And you ended up bridging the chapters with those outside of Arcadia stories. Mm-hmm. Did that influence this book at all and how you transitioned the chapters in this book? Um, a little bit, a little bit. Um, and for those, like, just kind of kind of bring up the speed on that. Um, when I was writing The Returns, you know, if you all have read The Return, you notice the inner chapters, these, like, small vignettes between chapters. Um, initially, they weren't broken apart like that. They were actually kind of embedded in the story. And when I was talking to my agent, we were going through those six months of revisions, um, she she had this issue where she she basically we had a phone call and she goes you know I like these stories that are being told but they they break up what's happening in Arcadia they kind of detract they they go off on a side side kind of tangent for just too long because they were much bigger like there were some that were like twelve pages long and like eleven pages like they were just really big meaty chunks so you'd be following Harold and Lucille and Jacob and then go away for twelve pages and then come back and it just wasn't working and so she goes you know I don't like how they're fitting right now but I want to keep them. Um, she goes fix it, and <laughs> I love that. Yeah, she, she's very good about telling you what's wrong, but she never tries to tell you how to fix it. Um, which is good and bad. Like I hate her for it, I love her for it because it makes me, you know, it still makes me have the creative license to do what I want. But it just kind of says like, oh, fix it. <laughs> but um, so the project before that, when the novel I had done that you know was, was never published and will never be published if I can help it, um, there were a lot of these vignettes where I used to kind of go like show a different character and like just do it in a very small condensed tight space um so i thought about that i said well what if i can do these stories in that format um because it was something i found very interesting and very flexible and i liked it um so i did i mean i put into the return like just these small vignettes and then it follows into this one and actually the two i'm actually working on like two projects now like the you know book three for the publisher and kind of another book as well um where vignettes play a part in that too but in different formats um so I think for me, it's just it's a context where I can kind of combine my poetry background with the fiction background as well and kind of, you know, serve two masters at once and hopefully make it work for readers. Um, so for the future, as of right now, it's, it's a, it'll be the vignettes will be a part of my, you know, my writing kind of process right now. And, you know, at some point, maybe I'll cut away from them or maybe they'll be a book with all vignettes. You never know. Next question. Yes, ma'am. Um, what's your writing process? Do you like do it longhand or do you like write at the computer or do you set out? certain time that you do it? Yes, definitely. Um, it's all on the computer, with fiction at least. Poetry I can do longhand, but fiction is always on the computer because there's so much of it. Um, I get up first thing in the morning, um, 6 a.m., go straight to the computer, like avoid Facebook, avoid the internet, all that good stuff that distracts you. Um, like right now, because I'm able to write full time, I, I, I put in about a six or seven hour day of like actually writing on stuff. Um, when I'm doing a first draft, I'll do like a, my goal is 10 pages a day during the first draft. 
Um, cause I, I just need a word count, like a page goal. Like if I get lucky and the fingers are just moving in like two hours and I'm kind of done, it's like, Oh, early day party. Um, if I'm not lucky, it's like, I'm there until like, you know, 12 hours late, I'm there at 6 PM, just still trying to get like that last paragraph out. Um, so that's like the early phase. And then once I get into the revision process, um, that becomes more about just, just hours, like just time. Like I'll mm-hmm. say, I, I need to revise these 50 pages today. Um, so that becomes like a 50 page chunk of revisions that day and 50 pages the next day or whatever. Um, so yeah, and I'm, I'm a big fan of outlines. I think that if you're, if you're working on a novel, you're trying to build like just a, a novel length work. Um, you need an outline, um, because the human brain was not designed to hold a narrative in 90,000 words. Like that is not something that we're meant to do. It doesn't help us survive in the jungle. It doesn't help us kind of, you know, you know, hunt and gather. It, it does nothing at all for us. So your brain has to be trained to do it. Um, so with me, if I don't have an outline, I found that my stories will fizzle at about 150 pages because I just don't know where I'm going. But if I have an outline, at least then I have like some rough roadmap to follow and say, oh, I got to hit this point. I got to have the character do this scene here at some point. So it just kind of gives me focus. Um, so big fan of outlines. But yeah, I try to do, you know, get up first thing in the morning because I write early because I found that Later in the day, you have more chances of your day getting interrupted. Like someone calls, some emergency breaks off, you know, you get some email about something. Like something can get in your way later in the day. Whereas early morning, you can usually do it. Um, now, there was a period when I wrote late at night, just when the world's kind of quiet. So I just try to write in those times when people can't text me and break the day up or they can't email me and like stop, you know, derail my whole plan for the day. Um, so, yeah, some process. Yes, ma'am? When you're revising, is there a great deal of sort of <clears throat> jettisoning, jettisoning oh, yes. that you had and trying to come up with a whole new idea? Yeah, completely. Um, I, I've been known to dump as much as half the, half the novel um, during the revision process. And it, it's, it's, it's actually very healthy and very good. Because what happens is, for me, in the first draft, um, to me, first draft is a license to do whatever the heck you want. Like, first draft should be the most fun that you can actually have in the writing process. Um, I think I, I, I call it the Lego block theory. Um, it's like you, you take Legos, just dump them all out, and then figure out what to do with them. That's what the first draft is to me. It's just me dumping stuff out. So if I'm working on the first draft, I will literally have characters that change gender from one, one scene to the next because I'm trying to understand how, you know, does it work better to have this character be male or female? Try it and see. So I have one chapter where the character is male. The very next chapter, the same character is there, but it's a female. Uh, you know, character may be from Louisiana, one scene, from New York, the next scene, because I want to see which one works better. So the first draft is a very messy, strange mix of all these different ideas about how the story could come out. And then once I've got that, I go back and read it. And then I start kind of sifting through and saying, okay, this character needs to be male. So rewrite these sections where the character's female or cut them or whatever. Um, Okay, the story is actually not about this other arc that I was kind of going to run. It's going to be about this story arc here. So I cut all those sections that had the other stuff in them. Um, It's a very kind of just just lop it off and just kind of move on to the next part. Like I said, I've had 300 pages in the first draft. By the end of first round of revisions, I've got 140 pages, and I got to go back in. But of those 140 pages, the story is there. The core of the story is there, and I know where the story is going to be. So at that point, right now, you know, putting back 150 more pages is pretty easy because I know what the story needs to be. I know the gaps I need to fill in. Um, it just becomes much more, much more doable at that point. Um, but I think with first drafts, I always tell people, like, have fun. Don't pressure yourself. Like, we, we put too much pressure on ourselves in first drafts. Because when you, you know, when you pick up a book, come to a bookstore, pick up a book, you're reading the final perfected version. And your brain automatically assumes, you know, this is what a book is. So when I write, when I write my book, the first time it comes out, it has to come out just like this one because this is what, you know, it really is. You don't see the behind the scenes, you know, the nine drafts that I went through before my editor even saw it. And then the five drafts that her and I went through. And then, you know, the two or three copy edit drafts. So like, you don't see the 15 versions of this book before it hit the stands, before it actually showed up in the bookstore. Um, so it, it creates the writing mystique, um, which isn't healthy. So I tell people, you know, mess up. Be, be excited about messing up. Just write and write and write and write. Um, you know, someone once, I heard someone once say, you know, you can't drive a parked car. That's my, that's my motto with first drafts. Like, you got to get it out. Even if it's bad, just dump it out and fix it later. Um, so first drafts to me are hilarious. <laughs> Jason, do you ever have any more dreams about your mom? Or if you did, what do you think that conversation would look like? <laughs> um, I haven't had any dreams as vivid as that first one. I've had a few more memory dreams. Um, but because I think for me, when I was writing The Returns, a lot of the things that I kind of hadn't sorted out, I managed to get sorted out on the page. So that kind of made me, you know, it, it, it took away like a lot of the things that I needed to work through. 
Um, so I haven't had any more dreams about her um, as far as like those kind of, I have a few memory dreams, but she would be pretty thrilled, honestly. Like, if she were here right now, she would absolutely love it because she was the biggest supporter of my writing before I, I actually knew I wanted to be a writer. You know, when I was like writing short stories, like 15, 16, and you know, not afraid to have people read them. Like I, w- I would write stories and not put my name on them. So if anybody found it, they couldn't prove I had wrote it. Um, <laughs> that's how bad. And I did, I did that until my 20s. Like, I was into my 20s before I actually wrote anything put my name on it. Um, but she was always saying, you know, just, you know, you can do it. Just really focus on it. You know, she was really supportive of me before I actually believed I could do it myself. Um, so to be here, you know, see how, thing, how far things have gone, she'd love it. What was the biggest lesson you learned from mom? Um, <laughs> a ton of lessons. Getting married at some point, probably so far. Um, but no, I think I think from mother, I've, I've just learned that the the importance of life and how precious and how short life actually is, and how you know if you have a goal, um, just pick that goal, fall in love with it, and focus on it. Um, that's been the biggest thing, just kind of to have focus in life. Um, yeah. Did uh, the college courses did they help you uh, learn to be a writer? Did they did the MFA program and the BFA program mm-hmm. for me. Um, you know, whether or not to go to school for writing is always a hot topic. Um, people say, you know, you don't have to go to school to be a writer, which is absolutely true. And other people say, well, you can be to school and be a writer, which is absolutely true as well. It all depends on the individual temperament of the person and, you know, your drive and your focus as a writer. For me, um, going to the MFA program helped me find mentors, which are probably the most important aspect of writing. And it's one of the most, it's one of the least talked about elements of writing. Um, almost every writer that I've met you know, in the last couple of years, who, you know, successful writers, you know, publishing and doing well, they can speak to usually one person who's become their writing mentor, maybe two, but it's usually one person who has really kind of got, who really kind of, you know, understands their writing and really makes them the writer that they are. Um, and so for me, I found that person in graduate school. I actually found like two of those people in graduate school and they became, you know, the people that, you know, they were worth every, every, every penny of student debt that I have, they were worth it. Like I, I, I don't, you know, I hate student debt, but they were worth it at the end of the day. Um, now, if I hadn't gone to college, would I still have become a writer? Um, I think so. I think it would have taken a lot longer because I did just learn some shortcuts. Not necessarily shortcuts, but just you, you, you progress further. You, know, you, you, you progress faster when you have a teacher. That's just kind of how it goes. You may have gotten there eventually on your own, but when you have someone who actually is able to instruct you and understand who you are and help, you, help nourish that even before you understand it, that's a healthy and helpful thing. Um, so that's one thing I found in, MFA, in the MFA program. Um, now, it's not a program for everyone because people oftentimes will go into those programs thinking that I'm going to write a book here in the program and that'll be the book that gets published and I can quit my job and move to Hawaii. Um, and it never happens that way. Um, MFAs aren't for that. They're there to help you establish good writing habits and become, you know, build that foundation of being a writer. Um, when I got in there, I kind of had that foundation built and I had mentors as, when I got there to kind of help progress it. So it helped me. It does. It's not for everyone, um, but I definitely. It definitely helped me. Yeah. When you talk about excising all the material when you're doing your drafts, mm-hmm. do you keep it? No, not really. No. <laughs> yeah, I, I just butcher it all. Um, you know, I'm on computer. You know, I save the old drafts, so I don't. I don't overwrite. You know, computer as far as files go. Um, but I don't. I don't save anything. The only thing. Only time I'll save something is if there's a scene that I have to cut that I feel is just a good scene in and of itself that I make me use for characters later down the line, um, then I'll save that scene. But I don't try to really salvage, you know, the parts that get cut. I, re- I rarely save anything. Um, because usually the, the things that I see that need to be cut, like, they're, they're really bad, and they, they just need to go. Because um, my first drafts are horrible. Like, I don't, I don't start writing, you know, good, good writing until about draft five or six. So I go through a long, long period where it is, it's a complete mess, and I would never want anyone to read it because it just doesn't make sense. The writing's not elevated. The characters are just bouncing around. Um, so I just I cut and cut and cut and cut and reduce and reduce and reduce. Um, like right now, I'm working on, the book I'm working on now, I'm, I'm probably my third draft of the new book. And, you know, the first draft came out at 300 and some pages, and I think I'm working with like 205 pages right now because those other 100 are gone. They got cut. Um, but I'm starting to fill back in now and kind of beefing the page count back up because I know what the story's about now. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't try to salvage, just kind of, I let them go, just kind of just chop them off and move on. <laughs> Next question. Maybe along the lines of page count and especially with audible and, you know, the recording stuff that happens on that side, mm-hmm. the eBooks, is there a page count that you have to hit or is it really care more about the story than say length? It depends. Um, if you're going through a traditional publisher, so we're not talking self-publishing in traditional publishing, 
certain genres have certain target um, word counts. Um, like literary fiction for a first novel is very specific. Literary fiction for a first novel, they tend to prefer 85 to 95,000 words. Ideally, 90 to 95 is where they want you. That's a sweet spot. If you're a, if you're a first-time author and you're literary fiction, it's like 90 to 95,000 words is where they want you at. Um, if you're a young adult, um, whether it's first novel or second novel, 60,000 words, 60 to 70,000 is kind of the high end on that. Um, so page count and word count becomes very specific to you know what publisher you're at, um, what genre you're writing in. Probably it's a big, but the genre becomes a big influence on that. But also the publisher. Like certain publishers are more open to having bigger stories. Some are not. Now at the end of the day, if your story is just absolutely amazingly fabulous at 120,000 words, they'll take it. If it's amazingly fabulous at 50,000 words, they'll take it. But realistically, um, they're going to want to ask. You know, when you when you query an agent or an editor. If you say, I've got this novel that runs 130,000 words, before they even go into the next sentence of your query letter, the first response is going to be, it's too big, it's too much, there's a lot of fluff that needs to be edited. You're going to, you're going to have to fight really hard to be able to justify all 130,000 words. Now, if you can do it, if the novel's there and it, it justifies it all, you're good to go. But typically, and it was true, like I think the first draft of The Returned came in at about 105,000 words. Um, and my editor was like, my, my agent at the time, because I hadn't gotten an editor yet, my agent said, we're probably going to cut about 10,000 words of this. Um, and I was like, all right, let's, let's start blooding it up. Let's start chopping stuff off. Um, and it took, a few, it took a while, but we got it down to, I think, 93,000 words. We found an editor. Um, and then I think she may have edited it down like another 2,000 words off of it. Um, but it is like the industry is very specific. Like they know, you know, they, they've been publishing for a long time. They know what sells and like how books do. So it's very specific. Now, again, Ultimately, if the story is just perfect at whatever length it's at, they're fine with it. Just expect a little bit of pushback. If you're really short or really long in your word count, expect to have to fight for it and justify it. Well, thanks, you guys, for coming out. So there you have it, an interesting conversation with Jason. And, of course, if you're doing any of your holiday shopping, we invite you to visit our Amazon affiliate link at resurrectionrevealed.com slash Amazon. But more importantly, if you'd like to support Jason and maybe get one of these books just for one of your loved ones this holiday season, or maybe even for yourself, just head on over to resurrectionrevealed.com slash book. Now the show will return November 30th and December 7th for two episodes before the Christmas break. And with that, we will be back with our quick initial thoughts and questions needing answered episodes on Sunday, November 30th. So make sure you stay subscribed to the feed. You can do that over at resurrectionrevealed.com. Just go ahead and click on any of the icons there for iTunes, Stitcher, iHeart, anywhere that you find podcasts, there we will be. Thanks again for tuning in this week for this special episode. I am Troy Heinrichs. You can find me at Troy Heinrichs on Twitter. You can also find Wayne at Wayne Henderson. Until we return next time, thanks so much from all of us here at Noodle Mix Network. Have a blessed evening. Resurrection Revealed is a proud member of Noodle Mix Network. Get more of our award-winning and award-nominated podcasts to make you think, laugh, and succeed at noodle.mx especially the Once podcast. If you're already watching Resurrection, you should be watching Once Upon a Time right before it at 8 Eastern and Pacific, 7 Central, and then listen to Once, the unofficial podcast and blog and forum with theories and talk about ABC's Once Upon a Time. All this and a bunch more of great content is waiting for you all over at noodle.mx.